So good evening. On the opening night of our retreat, which is hard to believe was only two nights ago because it feels like we've been here for so long already. On the opening night, I talked about how beginning a retreat sometimes can feel like setting off on a journey, an adventure, a kind of a voyage of discovery sometimes. And last night, Greg talked very inspiringly about following this as a path with heart. But I know from my own experience that by day two of the retreat, sometimes the inspiration of those metaphors has started to wear off. And rather than being a path with heart, it can feel more like a roller coaster through hell or a kind of a um, the intense ups and downs. And of course, with a roller coaster, there are highs as well as lows. But what I'm wanting to highlight is just how normal, how natural it is that in the beginning of a retreat, we can find ourselves moving through these, at times, quite intense ups and downs. It's normal that we're going to encounter some challenges, some various forms of discomfort, physical discomfort in the body that we've been exploring, and mental discomfort in the mind. So tonight I'd like to continue exploring some strategies for dealing with this discomfort. And the first strategy is almost so obvious that it um, barely needs worth stating, and that is to know what's actually going on. And I say that because... Here on retreat, that might seem obvious, but in daily life, when we encounter discomfort, what we normally do is try to avoid it at all costs. So we have all these different strategies or cures in quotation marks so that we never, we can try to minimize the discomforts that we feel. But here on retreat, we don't have access to those cures. We can't just swallow a handful of painkillers or binge watch our favorite TV shows or go shopping for things that we don't really need or eat an entire tub of ice cream or have a glass or three of wine or whatever it might be. When we come on retreat, we're practicing what Pema Chodron calls the wisdom of no escape. The wisdom of no escape. So we're allowing ourselves to be face-to-face with these discomforts and to really see, to get to know how do we relate to them. So this morning in the guided meditation at the end, I dropped in those three questions as an invitation to kind of take a snapshot of just what's happening in your being in the moment. So if you remember, I asked you to just to notice, well, what's happening in the body? And you might even do this again right now. Just that quick recognition, physical sensations. In the same way, what's happening in the heart-mind. So mental activity, including emotions. And I use this phrase, heart-mind, just to remind us that in these teachings, the word mind also includes emotions. So it's a more a full range of mental states. So I might ask you to notice 
what's happening in the heart-mind, what thoughts, what emotions, what moods, what mind states. So thoughts are just what we ordinarily mean by any kind of thinking activity. Emotions also pretty standard. Just the different um, comings and goings of things like irritation or delight or interest or boredom. By moods, I mean the kind of emotions that are maybe a little more complex and tend to stick around for longer, sometimes just kind of in the background, like a overall feeling of heaviness or dullness or perhaps optimism. And by mind states, I mean just uh, qualities of mind that we can recognize but don't necessarily have an emotional component to them. So quite a few of the skillful states of mind fall into this category, things like alertness or interest or curiosity or investigation. So we can ask ourselves, what's happening in the heart-mind? Thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states. Don't need to overthink it, but just to take that snapshot. And then the final question, how am I relating to that experience? Or what's the attitude in the mind to what's happening in the body, what's happening in the heart-mind? And this last question can often reveal... um, what the attitude in the mind is to what's happening. And we might suddenly recognize discomfort in the back, worry in the mind, hating it, wondering how I'm going to survive another two weeks of this. Oh, oh, that's aversion, not wanting. Or if the experience is pleasant, obviously it's usually the opposite of that. Oh, finally, some bliss. This is what they were talking about. I am set. The rest of the retreat is going to be so sweet. Oh, wanting, holding on, grasping, not wanting it to go away. At other times, we might notice not knowing. So not really clear, feeling a bit dull, spaced out, um, sort of blank, not quite connected with experience. So these kind of three movements, you could say, moving towards of wanting, moving away, not wanting, or not knowing, in Buddhist terms traditionally have been referred to as the three root poisons of greed, hatred, and ignorance. And I want to say straight away that that's pretty heavy language, And it can feed right into what for many of us is a strong conditioning around self-judgment and idealism and perfectionism and a sense that somehow this is telling us that we're fundamentally flawed in some way. And it can reinforce the tendency to treat our whole practice as some massive self-improvement project that's actually rooted in self-aversion. But the real point of these teachings, rather than taking them personally, is to see, to understand that all of us, because we're a human being, we have these, at times, afflictive qualities visit us. They're not inherently who they are, who we are, but they visit us from time to time. So becoming familiar with what these are is... uh, 
actually a huge part of the practice. And again, although these words are very heavy, each one of them refers to a whole spectrum of intensity. So, for example, if we talk about the uh, afflictive energy of greed that covers the spectrum from at one end the most intensely addictive craving that we can possibly experience right through to just that little pulse of wishing that we could have had a second piece of cake or whatever it might have been. Likewise, hatred or aversion includes the most murderous loathing at one end of the spectrum right through to just that Pulsive irritation when somebody takes the biggest piece of cake and leaves us with a slightly smaller one. And the term hatred in this context refers not only to anger, but also to fear. So it's any kind of energy that pulls away, withdraws, or strikes away, resists or rejects. So again, the fear that's referred to here can refer to abject terror, or to just those little pulses of anxiety that we sometimes experience. And then the third of these three, ignorance or delusion, again, can refer to the most pathological delusion at one end of the spectrum. And unfortunately, we have some living examples of that in global politics at the moment. And then at the other end of the spectrum, it's just that sort of wanting to blank out, to not really know what's going on, to when you hear the wake-up bell in the morning, perhaps that impulse just to pull the covers over our heads and go back to sleep. So all three of these, what I will call afflictive energies, or as they're sometimes known, root poisons, the word root suggests how kind of core they can be to our practice. And so as we work with them in our practice, we usually start with fairly gross or coarse examples of them. And then as the practice develops, we're dealing with more and more refined variations of them. But wherever we are on the path, we really always are training in seeing these afflictive energies more and more clearly, seeing them and learning how to release them so that there's literally more room in the heart and the mind for the non-afflictive qualities to grow. Skillful states such as generosity and ethical conduct and renunciation and patience, kindness, compassion, gladness, equanimity, and so on. So coming back to the theme of this retreat, this awakening of our natural wisdom Sometimes I think of this as being a bit like gardening. And what we're doing in relation to these afflictive energies is clearing out the rocks and uprooting the weeds and perhaps adding compost to the soil so that our natural wisdom can flourish. So when we come on retreat, these three um, energies of compulsion, aversion, and delusion have the power to seriously undermine our capacity to meditate. And so the Buddha pointed to five um, 
what he called the five hindrances, which are ways that these root energies really can sabotage our practice if we don't learn how to work with them skillfully. Those of you who are familiar with uh, five hindrances, they show up in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness, or the four domains of attention, as sensual desire, ill will or aversion, uh, sloth and torpor, in other words, sleepiness and dullness, as restlessness and worry, and as skeptical doubt. So the first of these, uh, sensual desire, is an expression of the root afflictive energy of greed or compulsion. And it's greed for pleasant sights, for pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, pleasant smells, pleasant physical sensations, pleasant mental experiences. So all five physical senses plus the mind, because in the Buddha's teachings, the mind is treated as a sense because we can hear sounds, we can listen to music in our heads perhaps, we can see visual images with our mind's eye. So the mind also is a sense door that can bring us a lot of pleasure. The hindrance of ill will or aversion again is pretty closely connected to this root energy of hatred, of aversion. And the last three hindrances of sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt, these are all forms of ignorance or delusion because they are ways that we're not seeing clearly. The mind is either dull or it's overstimulated or it's afflicted by doubt and indecision. So I want to reinforce... uh, Again, that when we hear about these hindrances, it's so important not to take them personally because they really are common to all of us. And sometimes I wish that uh, there was some device that could broadcast the contents of our mind on some kind of screen here that we all were feeding into because, as I said the other day, when we sit here in silence and perhaps we peek and take a look round and everyone looks so serene and so Buddha-like, but if we actually knew the contents of what people were thinking, we would really get a sense of, wow, I'm not as insane as I thought I was. So really to normalize that no matter how it looks from the outside, one of the privileges of being a teacher is that we get to see and hear a little bit more of what else is going on. And so one teacher, an English Dharma teacher by the name of Rob Berbea, he reframes these these five hindrances as manifestations of our humanity. And I think that really helps shift this attitude of perhaps unconscious resistance when we hear the hindrances to think of them more as manifestations of our humanity they're common to everyone including the buddha to be so we all have all of them and i'm not going to try and cover all five of them in detail tonight i'd like to just take the first one the hindrance of sense desire and offer some tools for working with it that many of them can be translated to the other hindrances as well. 
so the hindrance of sense desire, the uh, wanting pleasant sense-based experiences. And on retreat, as I said, we're relatively secluded from the usual range of ways that we might gratify the senses in daily life. But even so, perhaps because of that, at times, speaking for myself, the intensity of sensual desire on retreat can take us by surprise. We might find ourselves getting completely caught up, obsessing about something that ordinarily we wouldn't be that interested in chocolate or ice cream or coffee or avocado or to name just a few relatively benign examples. And perhaps because other than food, there's not a whole lot that we can get um, caught up in. Often on retreat, this hindrance manifests as a lot of mental fantasy, planning, planning future pleasant experiences or getting lost in daydreams. And it's quite incredible how involved the mind can be in all these different stories and projects, endless playing out of how our dream house is going to be built or where our dream holiday is going to be taking us to or how our dream partner is going to have us living happily ever after. So yes, some of you are familiar with the imaginary relationship known as the Vipassana romance, which um, usually disappears the minute we break silence and you hear the person speaking for the first time. So there are many different ways that the mind can get caught in um, fantasizing and obsessing in relation to sense pleasures. And again, when we recognize this, I've been really trying to emphasize having an attitude of kind curiosity rather than judgment or self-judgment. Because if we go into self-judgment, we're actually just feeding the second of the hindrances, the hindrance of aversion. And before we go any further, I do want to just uh, point out that it's not that we're trying to prevent pleasant experiences from happening and that we shouldn't be... Um, enjoying the pleasant experiences when we do when they do naturally arise. Again, to use a simple example, if we're served some delicious food, courtesy of Lewin and the team, if we're able to just notice all oh, pleasant smells, hmm, pleasant tastes, pleasant sights, pleasant textures, and so on, pleasant mental responses to the deliciousness. That's not a problem. On the other hand, if we find ourselves wondering if there's going to be enough for a second serving and then wondering if we could get away with a third serving and how long we can wait until everyone's gone so they won't see us and if the, when it's going to be cleared away and if it's possible to get the recipe and so on and so on, that might be an indication that it's slid over into sense desire. So we might still wonder, well, why is this a problem? Isn't it completely normal and natural to want things? Isn't that part of being a human being? Well, on one level, that's true. But in the context of a retreat where we're really trying to train the heart and mind to see clearly, the problem with these hindrances, every one of them agitates our psyches in various ways. They stir us up. 
They take us out of the present moment and they undermine our capacity to develop stability of mind, the kind of deep stillness of mind that is necessary for the most profound insights to to arise. So a common metaphor that the Buddha uses for the hindrances is um, in relation to a bowl of water or to a lake. And he uh, describes each of the hindrances in terms of how the water gets disturbed in different ways. So the metaphor for sense desire, he says, is like water that's been infused with colored dyes. And they make the water all these different colors, but they destroy its clarity so that we can't see what's in the water and we can't see the bottom. So if we want to be able to see clearly, we need to know how to relate skillfully to these hindrances. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha gave some quite clear instructions in relation to all of the hindrances. I'll read you the actual words from the text in relation to this first hindrance of sense desire. He says, If sensual desire is present, one knows there is sensual desire in me. If sensual desire is absent, one knows there is no sensual desire in me. And one knows how unarisen sensual desire can arise, how arisen sensual desire can be removed, and how a future arising of sensual desire can be avoided. So there's a huge amount to explore in that one brief uh, passage And the language is a little bit complex, but in essence what it's saying is first we have to know is sense desire present or absent. We we also need to understand what conditions help trigger sense desire to come up in the first place so that we have a better chance of preventing it from arising in the future. And if it does come up again, we need to learn how to remove it, to release it. So the first step then, again, it's pretty obvious, we have to know if it's present. In a strange way, we need to actually become intimate with it. So remembering this middle way that the Buddha, that I referred to the other day, with all of these, we're wanting to see what's present without either feeding it or um, enhancing it, but also not ignoring, denying or repressing it. We want to become intimate with it, to really get to know how does it manifest in this body, this heart, this mind. So for some of you, there might be some tinge of sense desire present right now. Perhaps just a little bit of craving for this talk to be over so you can go and get a nice hot cup of tea or a hot shower or dive into bed after a really long day. And if no particular desire is present right now, perhaps you can remember something from earlier today, perhaps around lunchtime, for example. So as you just touch into the memory of that sense desire, or if you can connect with any that may be present now, you might really pay attention to the body. as you recall that 
wanting of some kind? Is there anywhere in the body where there's some slight tension right now? Perhaps a little bit of gripping or holding. Perhaps a very faint sense of leaning forward, being just a little bit off balance in some way. And then with the mind, perhaps you might notice just a little agitation. Or perhaps some thoughts of, that's true, I can't wait for this talk to be over. Or, oh, I shouldn't be feeling like that. Or, what's wrong with you? You've been meditating for decades now. Why can't you stay here and not be thinking about ice cream? So as you keep exploring sense desires like this, you might start to notice the particular ways that they show up for you. They're kind of signature tunes or they're symptoms in your body and heart and mind. And the sooner you're able to recognize them, the easier they will be to deal with. Because with any of the hindrances, it's so much easier to deal with before it's escalated into what's known as a multiple hindrance attack. Because as many of you know, these things don't conveniently come one at a time in a nice sequential order. Often one gets a toehold and then it brings in all the rest in with us. So becoming familiar with them, we have a better chance of catching them sooner rather than later. And particularly with sense desire, we can practice the skill of riding out the desire rather than acting out on it. So with things that are relatively minor, as best we can on retreat, we can experiment with not actually going for the third helping, for example. And we might start to notice that actually when we don't fulfill the desire, we can see it arising it stays for a while, and at some point it passes away. We don't actually have to get that thing in order for it to release. When we see this, we start to become aware of one of the fundamental delusions of desire, and that is the assumption that we have to get X in order to be happy. And X here stands for whatever your habitual thing might be. So on retreat, again, simple examples, chocolate, coffee, ice cream, a hot shower, whatever, whatever we're craving. Usually we think that we have to get X in order to feel better. But if we pay attention, what we might notice is that getting X is actually what allows the momentary craving to be released. And it's the agitation of the craving that we're trying to get rid of more than the needing of the thing itself. But because we don't pay attention, we usually conflate the two. So if we really notice this, when we're going after X, what we're actually unconsciously trying to do is get rid of the agitation of wanting rather than really needing whatever it is that X seems to promise us. So if we're able to ride out the desire, we can begin to change our habitual compulsive relationship to whatever X is. And we might begin to 
be able to meet that desire with actual kindness or compassion, for example. And we're going to be exploring kindness and compassion practices more directly uh, pretty soon. But So for now, I won't go into too much detail, but just to say that things like self-compassion practice, I think almost as being a universal antidote for any of these hindrances, because by definition, they're afflictive, they're hindrances, they're um, suffering in various kinds. So learning to bring kindness and compassion to them rather than self-judgment is a very uh, helpful way to start. So easy to say that uh, we want to try and meet uh, these hindrances with kindness. But most of us have pretty strong conditioning to take things personally. So instead of simply knowing with bare awareness, oh, sense desire has arisen. Sense desire is like this. Instead of that bare awareness, we tend to identify with the afflictive energy We take ownership of it. We make it me and mine and who I am. I'm so greedy. We take it personally and we make it permanent. This is always the way I am. Me, I'm the greedy one. And both of these are pretty serious distortions of perception that actually amplify into this multiple hindrance attack. So we get caught in self-judgment, which is a form of aversion, And aversion is exhausting, so often we just go and take a nap to try and get out of it. And then we get caught in more self-judgment and the mind gets all agitated and restless and caught up in worry. And then all of these can come together and undermine our capacity to be mindful. So then there's a last straw, the hindrance of skeptical doubt comes into play. And we start to convince ourselves that we're the world's worst meditator and we should just do everyone a favor and go home. So the key to not getting lost like that, the key to stopping the chain reaction is to really catch it at its source and to recognize that we are getting identified with it. And instead of taking it personally, again, can I see... It's not that I'm greedy, it's just, oh, a lot of humanity is being manifested right now. So coming back to Rob Berbea's phrase, you know, as best we can, bringing humor to whenever we recognize that these hindrances are are present. So those are just a couple of ways that we might deal with sense desire once we've recognized it. But even better, it's to see what might we do differently to stop it from coming up in the first place. So as the old saying goes, prevention is better than cure. And one way to prevent it from arising is actually... um, what could I say? It's a little bit like aversion therapy. So we might want to notice what happens when we have got caught in feeding some kind of sense desire. We have indulged in it. can be really helpful to notice what are the after effects of indulging in whatever it was. So just a little example from my own life. I'm using food a lot because it's kind of relatively simple and straightforward and it's perhaps uh, relevant on retreat. 
but a few years ago when I was on staff at IMS, somebody donated a whole lot of desserts for the staff and they were all laid out in the dining room. And there was something like, I don't know, four or five huge baked cheesecakes. And I'm not usually a big dessert person, so I'm not quite sure what was going on this day, but I took one of these massive slabs of cheesecake and I hadn't even finished eating the first slab and I was already thinking, this is good, I'm going to have seconds. So I'm stuffing the first slice in so that I can make sure I get seconds. And I was going up to get a second and I had this vague idea, maybe this isn't such a good idea, but never mind, I actually ate the second And as I say, I'm not sure what happened, but I actually went and got a third piece. And I ate three in like really short space of time. And then I went back upstairs to my office and I was sitting there and I started to feel this kind of gurgly, kind of icky feeling. But I noticed my mind kind of metaphorically going, la, 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 everything's fine. And every time I noticed the unpleasantness, my mind would just sort of bounce off and go somewhere else and sort of distract itself. And I actually noticed this. So at some point I I said, okay, let, feel this, feel this. And I just sat there and I really allowed myself to contact the queasy, greasy, churning, gurgling kind of indigestion in the body, the heaviness and this cloying in the mouth And then in the mind, all the feelings of what were you thinking and that was ridiculous and how long have you been meditating and blah, blah, blah. Feel all that in the mind. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, more desserts were put out and I just looked at them and went, I don't think so. And it wasn't even a moment really of temptation. And that's not to say I'll never ever eat another piece of cheesecake. You've seen me eating desserts. But my relationship at least this far, hasn't been as unconscious and compulsive. So that's just an example, a relatively benign example of really paying attention to the after effects of indulging sense desire because that can help um, undermine the tendency to do it again. So if all else fails, we can do that exercise. But again, it's better to see if we can avoid indulging in the first place. And to do this, we really need to understand the causes and conditions that are likely to make us um, get caught. So on retreat, the retreat is kind of a laboratory where we have these specialized conditions that make it easier to see what's underlying the craving and sometimes we might need to consciously look okay instead of feeding the fantasy or the desire to come back to the body the heart and the mind and see what else is going on right now and we might notice oh there's some kind of boredom anybody experience boredom today quite a few nods And usually when we're bored, what do we do? We try to distract ourselves. So we spend, we're walking, a few minutes go by, and then we spend the next uh, 15 walkings up and down thinking about our next holiday in Mexico or wherever it happens to be. But if we can stop and realize, oh, sense desire, is there something else going on? Is there boredom? 
getting curious about boredom makes it interesting. We can start to explore. What is boredom? How do I know that I'm bored? How does boredom feel in the body? How does it feel in the heart-mind? What are the thoughts associated with it? And again, if I can just meet the boredom with kindness and compassion, then we don't need to go to the fantasy. At other times, we might notice other kinds of unpleasant underlying emotions. So we find ourselves suddenly planning our holiday in Mexico again, and we sort of do what I call post-mortem mindfulness, where we trace back and see, well, how did that happen? Oh, there was that flash of remembering that disastrous holiday with an ex-boyfriend a few years ago. Oh, So we jump straight from that into something that's pleasant as an unconscious strategy to get away from some kind of painful emotion. So just trying to see underneath whatever the desire, the fantasy is, and take care of that emotion often will stop us going off into more fantasy. A further very powerful way of preventing sense desire from coming up is something that I think all of you have already been doing here on this retreat, and that's traditionally known as guarding, guarding the sense doors. So this involves, you know, really noticing the areas where we might tend to get um, over-involved in things or triggered by things and just not going there. So, for example, if I know that I have a craving for coffee, real coffee on retreat, and I happen to notice that the cooks or maybe the teachers are making themselves a real coffee every morning at about 10 o'clock, that might not be the best time to be walking right by the kitchen. So I might guard the sense gates and choose to go somewhere else. In a similar way, if we're walking out in the neighborhood, we don't really need to look at every driver and every car that goes past us. Because so often we can find our attention just caught, wondering who are they, where are they going, where have they come from, and oh, they've got Queensland license plates, blah, blah, blah. And off we go. So we don't really need to look at another car. We've seen probably plenty of cars. So just keeping the eyes down. Similarly, in relation to other meditators, we give each other the gift of space. Not in, as a, in a cold or unfriendly way, but just as a support for going inwards. So guarding the sense doors is a strategy that um, comes under the umbrella term of renunciation. And renunciation, too, is a very powerful practice in relation to working with sense desire. But in the West, this term renunciation has a lot of, um, you could say, baggage that comes with it. And for many of us, it's understood as deprivation or kind of punishment or hair-shirted masochism of some kind. And this is very different from the kind of renunciation or the way the Buddha talks about renunciation in the discourses. I looked it up once, and in almost every case when renunciation was referred to, it was referred to as the bliss of renunciation. But in English, those two words generally don't go together. It can sound like a complete contradiction in terms. 
So how could renunciation possibly be blissful? So the translation of the original Pali word nekama as renunciation isn't so helpful because I understand that nekama actually refers to leaving the household life and becoming a monastic. So it definitely has connotations of letting go. But it's emphasized that what we let go of allows us to live with more ease and happiness and freedom. So it's a movement towards happiness rather than punishment. So to get around these negative connotations of renunciation, uh, one of our teachers, Joseph Goldstein, refers to renunciation as non-addiction. Non-addiction. And I hope that I find that helpful for pointing to the freedom that's implicit in renunciation. It's freedom from compulsion, from being driven by our desires and feeling powerless over them. And yet for um, it's this freedom from being dependent on external conditions or substances or food or whatever it is. Dependency on external conditions being a certain way in order for us to be happy. But sadly, in the West, most people never have the chance to experience this kind of freedom because our whole society is so strongly conditioned around acquiring and getting and having and accumulating. And as Greg mentioned last night, it's assumed that happiness comes from this, from acquiring more and more stuff, more and more money, And the capitalist basis of our society feeds into that by trying to convince us that we need to meet every single individual preference in order to be happy. But in practice, for me at least, this um, often has the opposite effect. So as a simple example, when I'm in the U.S., uh, sometimes the people I'm staying with uh, will take me out for a treat to what they think of as a treat to one of the big chain coffee stores. And as many of you have probably experienced, the array of choices in these coffee stores these days is pretty mind-boggling. So just trying to get a cup of coffee becomes this uh, prolonged decision-making ordeal. And first of all, you have to say, well, what size do you want, small, medium, or large? And do you want decaf or regular? And What type of milk? Do you want dairy or non-dairy? And if it's dairy, is it full fat or low fat or half and half, which is half milk and half cream? And if it's non-dairy, do you want soy milk or almond milk or rice milk or non-dairy creamer? And what kind of sweetener do you want? Do you want sugar or brown sugar or white sugar or stevia or agave or those packets of diet stuff? And then there's the actual flavor of the coffee because just coffee coffee is so old-fashioned. These days it's got to be blueberry flavored or hazelnut or French vanilla or pumpkin spice or cinnamon sticky bun or chocolate dipped strawberry. And I'm not making it up. These are actual flavors that I've seen on sale. And this proliferation of choices doesn't actually make people more happy. There's been quite a lot of research about how more choice actually creates more stress. And it also, I think, disconnects us, reduces our capacity to enjoy the more simple pleasures of life. 
So a couple of years ago, I was traveling with an American friend, and she uh, really likes to drink her coffee um, with French vanilla non-dairy creamer, you know, those sachets of powder that you put in. And we were, we stopped somewhere, and our, our two cups of coffee got mixed up, and I accidentally got hers, and I took a swig, and I just about gagged. <laughs> She took a swig of mine and said, wow, that's delicious. What flavor is it? And I said, it's coffee. And she said, yeah, but what flavor is it? And I said, it's just coffee. And she couldn't believe it was just coffee because she'd actually forgotten what just coffee tasted like after so many years of adding these things. So perhaps you have similar examples from your own lives of how more choice doesn't necessarily lead to more happiness and can actually be stressful. And hopefully as you settle into the retreat and you get more used to the relative simplicity of being here, you might start to experience the benefits of having a little more ease, a little more peace of mind, maybe even a sense of freedom in moments. And this is the final aspect of working with the hindrances that I'd like to really emphasize tonight. Because if you remember back to the quote from the Satipatthana Sutta, the instruction is to not only know when a hindrance is present, but to know when it's absent. But for many of us, this is a very challenging aspect of the practice. So you may remember in the Q&A session yesterday, I briefly mentioned uh, neuroscience's understanding of the mind's inherent negativity bias, which refers to the way our brains are sort of hardwired to pay more attention to what's unpleasant and potentially threatening than to what's easeful and um, going well. So Rick Hansen's often quoted aphorism that our minds are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. And we can see this in the way we relate to the hindrances. You know, we spend a lot more time being aware of the hindrances because they're unpleasant and perhaps never even notice when they're absent. Or if not absent, at least reduced. So don't overlook these moments of absence. So even right now, if you check in again to your bodies, if you think of a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 being the most intense craving, sense, desire you've ever experienced, how is your level of sense, desire right now? Just from the look of you from outside, I'm not seeing anyone who looks like they're at a 10 so we can celebrate that. We can really appreciate sense desire right now, I'm guessing, is relatively low. Maybe just for a few moments it's low, but notice that. Notice the moments of contentment, of letting go, of ease, of non-compulsion, non-addiction, that maybe shades over into generosity, and gratitude and appreciation. These are just some of the many skillful qualities that can come in when sense desire is absent. So I really encourage you to let those in so that they become a resource and they can set up a positive feedback loop that builds confidence in the practice.
So just one more simple example from my own life. Um, again, it's about food. I was here at BMIMC about 15 years ago now um, doing an eight precept retreat so with a monastic teacher and on eight precepts. As most of you know, we don't eat solid food after midday, but usually the center puts out uh, a bowl of sweets of uh, candy or lollies and most of the time these are not particularly exciting lollies they're just uh, what in England we call hard-boiled sweets or boiled candies but one day I came in and somebody had um, offered what are called uh, chocolate eclairs, if you know those, the sort of toffees, caramels with a blob of chocolate in the middle, which technically I don't think are allowable under eight precepts, but they were offered, so I indulged. And they were so much better than the ordinary hard-boiled lollies. And each time I was so excited when there was still some there, and then I came in one afternoon and there was one left, and sitting there in the middle of all the ordinary lollies and I felt this pulse to go and get it and at the same time I felt the person behind me make the same recognition realize there was only one left and I could sort of feel her breathing down my neck and I had this moment where I thought yes I'm going to get the last one and then I thought I don't really need it why don't I just renounce it and let her have it and so I did I just took an ordinary lolly and I saw her kind of like wow what happened and she took it and I still remember that lolly that I didn't eat I mean how many lollies have I eaten maybe thousands I don't know hundreds of thousands I don't remember any of them the one I do remember is the one I didn't eat because it's associated with a moment of freedom I had a choice I made a choice and I moved, at least momentarily, in the direction of contentment, of generosity and of gratitude. And those qualities of heart and mind so much more enjoyable than a moment of a little sugar, sugar hit. So again, you probably all have examples from your own lives, but I just wanted to really encourage us to celebrate those small or large victories over compulsion, those moments of freedom from the cravings, freedom from the hindrances. So I trust that as we do this practice, more and more these moments become the default settings of our hearts and minds. And more and more we're moving in the direction of experiencing the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind, which is what all of these teachings are pointing to. So thank you for your attention. Let's just take a few moments to let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.